Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Chainsaw Buffet Podcast. We're here at Hamacon 4 in Huntsville, Alabama. And we are joined by somebody I have wanted to interview ever since I saw one of his panels at Anime Week in Atlanta. One of the editors for Dark Horse Publishing, uh, Carl Horn. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's great to be invited. Oh, anytime. You're always welcome. Um, so, I know you just recently, within the last couple hours of a panel, where you talked about a lot of the things that you're going to be working on, but... For those who weren't there and are listening now, uh, what are some of the things that you're working on now that you can talk about? Well, I was talking about some of the uh, titles that we'll be releasing, uh, probably coming out early next year, um, one of which is the Hatsune Miku manga. Um, I see, of course, so many people here dressed as Hatsune Miku, and I've been seeing it as conventions across the country. I think she's pretty famous, you know, the Vocaloid star. There actually is a manga um, about Hatsune Miku, which is done by her creator, Kay, and we're going to be releasing an omnibus of it. It's about 500 pages, with about 40 pages also a beautiful color, mostly black and white, of course, being a manga. And um, that should be coming out early next year. In addition to that, um, we're also um, releasing The Art of Katsuya Terada. Now, Katsuya Terada is an artist that some people may know. Um, he is the character designer for the famous anime Blood, the Last Vampire. But more recently, he has done the Monkey King manga, which is unusual for a manga in that it's painted in full color. We're also very proud that um, this year um, he's up for Eisner, which you know is the top um, award in American comics at the San Diego Comic-Con. And he's been nominated for um, Best Painter and Multimedia Artist for The Monkey King Volume 2. The Art of Katsuya Terada will have um, a number of pieces that haven't seen before in Japan, but also I understand about 40 pieces that have not appeared anywhere. And furthermore, we'll have commentary uh, directly from the artist, because we have a close relationship with Mr. Tirada. Also uh, coming out soon will be the sequel to Lone Wolf and Cub. Lone Wolf and Cub, uh, the samurai epic, is actually our longest-running manga, but there actually is a direct sequel to it, um, written by the same creator, Kazuo Koike. It's going to be 11 volumes, and it picks up directly where the original left off, with Daigoro um, standing on the, the battlefield. He's covered in blood. But what happened to him afterwards? You know, after all, he's still just a kid. Um, so it picks up from there and uh, is another return to the sort of richly imagined and well-researched um, world of the Tokugawa era. That all sounds uh, really fascinating. Um, as far as the Vocaloid manga, is that going to come with a coupon from Domino's or anything like that? Uh, you know, I actually, um, for the announcement, we announced Hatsune Miku at SakuraCon, which is in Seattle. And I actually got a tie just like the Domino CEO <laughs> um, in the exact same sh shade of, you know, teal, which is, you know, uh, Miku's hair. And I actually was wearing a, a different colored tie. And then when we made the announcement, I suddenly took it off and whipped it, you know, replaced it all of a sudden. So um, I believe that. And she also does promos for Toyota. Isn't that right? I think so. Yes. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe we can uh, maybe we can work that in there. Um, you know, she's a really charming character, and so we're we're really happy to do that. Um, Dark Horse's reputation, perhaps, for doing a lot of classic manga, and also you know maybe a lot of you know tough and manly manga, you know like Berserk and Lone Wolf and Cub. But you know we also do things like uh, Oremo and um, Hatsune Miku, which are more cute. And since we're the longtime publishers of you know Oh My Goddess, we have absolutely no objection you know to things being kawaii around here so. right now you started if i remember correctly uh with viz doing the uh the evangelion manga correct that's right um 
Evangelion was the first manga I ever edited. Um, before I did that, I was an uh, editor on An America Magazine at Viz. I sort of got into the industry more through the anime side than the manga side. But um, it just so happened that we were lucky. Um, An America Magazine, in its February 1995 issue, actually ran the first article anywhere on Evangelion. Not just in Japan, anywhere. We actually managed to scoop the Japanese magazines. And um, not we didn't know too much about it at the time, and some of what we, we heard about it later turned out to not be correct. But, you know, that's Evangelion for you. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so um, I was asked by uh, one of my senpai, who is the editor of An American Magazine, Trish Ledoux, and she was the person who brought me into Viz in the first place. While it's true that I didn't have any experience as a manga editor, having never edited a manga before, I did know something about Evangelion, having written about it. So she thought that was the start. So she said, why don't you try this? Give this a try. And this was in 1997. So uh, she sort of, you know, mentored me. And um, that was back during the days when it was still published in comic book form, mm-hmm. you know, one chapter a month, and also published in the flipped Western format. But there's an interesting um, story behind that. In 1997, we and nobody else in the industry had any confidence that people would actually read a Japanese-style comic book, that they would actually read it right to left. And again, manga were sold through the comic book stores at the time and sort of had to go by the comic book rules. But they told us, you can't publish Evangelion unless you publish it Japanese-style. So we made a compromise. We said, well, can we publish two versions? Can we publish an American flipped version and a Japanese version? And I was like, well, okay, if you want to do it twice, as long as there's a Japanese version. So just to be able to put it out, that's how little confidence. And the Japanese version, we called it the Special Collector's Edition. In other words, we couldn't think of any reason that people would want to read the Japanese version just because it was read Japanese, but there was still comic collectors at the time. So we thought, we know, we'll treat it like a variant. Like, com- <laughs> Special Collector's Edition, it reads backwards. Hey, right. how about that? It's like, you know, chromium cover, better than that. <laughs> um, so that was the beginning of my long period of confusion as a manga editor, because I had to edit both. So like, one, I'm having to edit, it's right to left, other, it's left to right, it's the same page. I'm... And we even used to include little um, icons, little arrows at the top of the page to tell you how to read. You know, okay, now turn it this way, now turn it that way. Okay, stupid, just like the last page. You know, <laughs> And to this day, I feel a little bit silly putting... Um, those warnings on the back page of the book saying you're reading it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. But then I stopped to think about it. Um, What if it's somebody's first manga? And, of course, we want new people to get into manga. So, you know, even though it may feel... So I kind of say, this is a millionth manga you've read this way, never mind. But, you know, it it, it may be somebody's first, so don't, um, you know... So give them a little little instruction there. So, yeah, that was the first um, manga I edited. And then... um, Shortly after that, Adviz um, became editor of Manga Editor of Pulp Magazine, which was the first uh, seinen uh, manga magazine in the U.S. Seinen manga being manga really for adults. It's a very broad term. Um, it covers everything from like Golgo 13 to Azumanga Daio. Yeah, not, not necessarily to be confused with uh, H.A. or Hentai. Right, these are very, yeah, they're not necessarily, they, they, they may have no sex or violence at all. They just, you know, basically have what are called mature themes. Yes. <laughs> For example, there's a panel uh, later on today at this con called uh, Salaryman Manga. And the Salaryman, of course, is a white-collar businessman in Japan, and Japan is famous for them. There are some great manga which are basically about being a salaryman. And it's kind of, um, you know, it's weird because we here in America, 
we, you know, we love business, maybe we worship business. We're always talking about the private sector. And we created comic books, right? And yet we've never been able to create a comic book about businessmen. You know, come to think of it, there aren't even many to, many TV shows about businessmen. I guess the Mad Men is one, but, you know, mm-hmm. that's sort of a period piece. Mm-hmm. We do shows about doctors and lawyers, but how about people like in the corporate world? You know, we tend to maybe do things like The Office, which kind of expose the, uh, you know, the dark side of working in a company. But, like, I mean stories that sort of take the uh, the corporation at face value, the idea of the, the corporate worker's hero as a guy who's trying to achieve something, to, like, get things done for his or her company and, you know, grow the industry. That should sound like it's a great story, and yet we don't see um, um, we don't see a lot of that. So there's a very famous salaryman manga called Kosaku Shima, which is one of my favorites. It began in the early 1980s in Japan, back when Japan was still king of the world. And the guy started as, like, a small-time, you know, guy in his company and has gradually worked his way up and has now been promoted to president after all these years. And, you know, he's gotten older and his, you know, his hair has gotten grayer. And always deals with, like, the the corporate issues that are facing Japan, you know, outsourcing and competition from China and all that. But I always like to bring this up and show people the cover of the magazine that runs Kosaku Shima because it might have that dude sitting, like, at a table in a business suit, like, staring ahead, thinking, and I'm saying, you would never put that on an American comic book cover. Like, okay, what? He's about to rip off that real <laughs> Superman, Superman, right? No, 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 that's the guy. It's like, and that is the... That is a wonderful achievement of comics in Japan, the fact that you can have a comic book about a businessman and it's a bestseller. That really shows you the meaning of comic books being mainstream when they're, you know, they can be literally corporate. Because, you know, know, people say Superman's corporate because he's, like, owned by DC. But no, no, this guy's literally corporate. He's a corporate (laughs) guy. Um, So things like that are really what excite me about manga. I mean, I, I love the crazy stuff about manga, too, but just also the fact that you can be so normal and still make you know a successful book um to me you know it's the sheer normality of manga the fact it's accepted you know normal to read it that's part of what makes it so exciting because in america you know everybody knows what comic books are and uh, people go to see movies like the avengers and that's really popular i never thought a movie like the avengers would be so popular because i was thinking too much like a comic book fan because you know i like the avengers but they were you know always second string marvel title you know, like the X-Men or something like right. that. But it, And it used to be thought that the reason more people in America didn't read comics was because they thought superheroes were like corny. But, you know, put them, make a good movie about them, people love them. It's not like America was saying, I'm not going to go see Spider-Man. It's beneath my dignity to see a man swing from a web, <laughs> you know. No, no, it's like the guy's a hero and, like, they have all this great material to work from and make a really exciting thing. And you know, the thing about the superhero movies is, in many ways, they kind of achieve what the comic books don't these days. They can get new people into it. You don't have to know all the 20 or 30 years of backstory. You know, it's like some of these, you know, things you need a PhD and like continuity to follow all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what comics used to be like in the early 60s, you know, in the Silver Age, when these heroes were first being introduced. So um, there's this weird disconnect between the fact that superheroes can be really successful at the movie theater and yet very few people actually buy superhero comics or any comics. It certainly helps, but, you know, a really good-selling comic book these days may be selling sixty or 70,000 copies a month. Now compare that to some of these movies that make hundreds of millions, you know, and that's, that's kind of the disconnect. So that's, again, what's so exciting about manga. In Japan, you don't have to wait for the manga to get made into a movie to be successful. Right. The manga can be successful in and of itself. 
it'll still get made into the movie, you know, but like the guy who created One Piece, you know, he became a very rich guy just based off the comic. Mm-hmm. There's the movies, you know, but he, he didn't need that. And everybody understands that the core of the work is the comic, is the manga. You know, nobody's saying, oh, they need to make a movie before people took it seriously. No, it was the comic that made people take it seriously. And that's uh, that's really cool. I think that's interesting because, at least as far as um, what what you might call the, the geek sect here in America, that's the ideal. That's what we want to have happen in Japan. That's very much the reality. And it's because it's perceived differently. It's just perceived as a matter of course as opposed to uh, having the stigma attached to it as being a kid's thing, quote-unquote. That is the, that's one of the great ironies of people thinking that comics are kid stuff. There aren't a lot of comics really for kids anymore in America. No. Like, almost all comics are directed, you know, at hardcore fans. You know, people who are willing to, who have, who have the long boxes, you know, in the comic shops, who are, you know, buying, you know, many comics a week. Um, they don't offer much, you know, to the, to the casual fan. You know, you can still find, like, you know, Archie and all that at, like, the... Super Archie meets Kiss and whatever yeah, other nonsense and is that, going on. That's not to be sneezed at because, you know, everybody's fighting for that um, space on the uh, by the checkout counter. That's where us and you know, you know, people go. You know, that's that's some high profile stuff. So the fact that Archie is able to be there is nothing to be nothing to be sneezed at. And for that matter, Archie's nothing to be sneezed at. I I love Archie comics, but um, but no, it's like in terms of where the comics industry is, it stopped selling to kids a very long time ago. Now, there are still good people making good comics for kids, but it's not where the major titles are. You know, the major titles are, you know, Walking Dead and, of course, you know, the superhero titles, you know, things of that sort. So, yeah, it's like um, comics being kid stuff, you know. I kind of wish there were kid stuff like Shonen Jump in Japan because that sells, you know, three million copies a week. But uh, So it's almost like the industry sort of had a half-right idea of wanting to grow with their fan base, but they've ignored, or they're start, or are ignoring the younger generation that would eventually grow into what they're currently producing. Or, or even ways of making it accessible, except for, you know, the occasional reboot, like, uh, I think Marvel recently did, like, a, a number ones thing, where yeah. it was a new continuity. And DC did and their D- new yeah. 52. We, um, we, we certainly do try to make uh, comics for kids, Part of the reason is perhaps um, comics are perhaps somewhat expensive. They yes. um, they've gone up at uh, at uh, several times the rate of inflation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, comics start off at being a dime. Now, in many cases, they're three three fifty, three ninety nine. If they kept up with inflation, they'd probably cost about a dollar. Uh, you know, other things have not gone up that much since the nineteen thirties. Part of the reason is that um, comics are actually a fairly expensive format to print in. They start off as being something very cheap. Um, my understanding is that originally um, there were these big rolls of newsprint they would use to make newspapers, and but they uh, they trimmed them off, and there was this like sort of waste trim. And someone thought, well, what can we do with this waste? I know we can reprint, you know, uh, comic strips from the paper, and just slap a glossy cover cover on it. But um, that sort of thing went away a long time ago, and it's actually now expensive to preserve the comic format. Hmm. In other words, it's actually. Printer, it actually would be cheaper to go straight to graphic novel. Um, we have a person at Dark Horse who does nothing but negotiate with paper companies and printers. Because, as you might imagine, all of our books are printed on paper, and so paper is our primary um, you know, resource. And we're competing with not only other comic companies, but um, with 
other book publishers. And we're not one of the big, you know, book publishers in the world. One of the projects I recently worked on was um, the slipcase of The Sky, The Art of Final Fantasy by Yoshitaka Amino. Now, um, I understand that we're doing a print run of 75,000 copies, but this is um, these are three hardbacks that come with each one, mm-hmm. and um, it's something close to like 700 pages. Right. Now, doing the math, we're talking several tens of millions of, page, of pages of high-quality paper that we need. You know, there's this we can't just do it on, you know, cheap newsprint. It's got to be a high-quality, glossy stock. You know, this is an art book. So, you know, we have to scramble for that stuff. Um, they're, you know, it's going to fill, you know, at least an entire container. So, you know, it has to be, you know, shipped from China and all that. Right. Um, so books are mechanically produced objects. They are, uh, they are put together in factories, and we have to think about the binding strength, um, you know, um, the spines are created specially, sometimes with the indentation to give it strength. Um, we do a lot of digital stuff now, too. But um, I don't think that digital is a replacement for print books. I think it's an alternate way of reading it. Because the thing about books that we've come to realize is you sell books basically for people who want books. In other words, for people who want the physical object. To a lot of people, it's like, I want the book just like I would like the figurine, I would like the poster and all that you can't replace it with the digital version because that's not the book. Right. In other words, they actually want the physical object. And you see the sort of how the two cultures work together with our very successful uh, Zelda book um, and also with Bioshock and, again, with Final Fantasy. Now, these are all video games, and video games are the quintessential digital art form. And yet, people know that there is so much... Um, design work and artistic thought that goes into the creation of these games, they would like to have a nice book about them. So these same people who really enjoy the game's digital experience, they also enjoy having it as a book. Um, And that's really cool because one of the things Dark Horse built a reputation over was um, doing comic book adaptations of movies. And the idea, it used to be that the comic book adaptation of movies was just a cheap thing you do as a knockoff for money. But Dark Horse, you know, we wanted to develop universes, like Star Wars, for example. You know, it's a lot of effort to make a Star Wars movie, a lot of money. Comics, you can move a lot quicker. You can express your ideas. And, you know, over the years, we've been able to vastly expand, you know, the Star Wars universe in comic form. But nowadays, also, there's so much creativity going into uh, video games. In some cases, there's more creativity than in in the Hollywood movies, you know. Some Hollywood movies are pretty dumb by comparison to some of the, you know, the ideas and thoughtfulness and artistic inspirations that are in some video games now. So um, it's great to do these books because that way people can appreciate it. And these are the kind of books that people have been doing for years on movies. You know, here's the art of the movie. Here's all the, the backdrops and design sketches. People should also get a chance to appreciate video games that way. So we're kind of happy to be moving into that new era and sort of show the... Um, the union between um, books and, and digital media. That's fantastic. Um, I want to touch on a couple of things uh, while we have you. Um, first, I kind of wanted to know, um, I know you said you kind of came in through the anime side writing for uh, Anime America back in the day. What were some of the shows that got you into anime? Well, um, I first, um, like a lot of people in my generation, I was born in 1970, um, I saw Speed Racer on television. My background was a little unusual. Um, I was lived in Iran when I was a kid. Uh, you were seeing Argo. It was kind of like that. 
No, it's not. This, this, <laughs> this is a few years before Argo. It was uh, before the revolution. Um, and um, But um, like a lot of places where Americans were around the world, um, there was armed, armed forces radio television. Mm-hmm. And they would show um, American uh, broadcasts. Um, there was a show there, a host, Uncle Something, I forget his name. It was, he was the kid show host. And they'd show Speed Racer. Now, Speed Racer, which of course is about a uh, you know race car driver who gets in all these crazy situations, that'd be exciting enough for a kid. And I was kind of lucky that my parents um, were able to recognize the Japanese names. Like a lot of people say, oh, I never knew that was Japanese. But I did because my parents would recognize the Japanese names in the credits. And they would tell me, oh, that's from Japan. Now, of course, I'm like four or five years old. I don't really know what Japan is. But at least I, I heard the word. There weren't actually any Japanese people in Iran at that time, I don't think. There were some Chinese people. Mao was still alive, so they were still, it was like Rama, and they were still wearing the, the green caps, the red star, because sure. they had to do that. But the, um, but the first anime I saw in Japanese, with subtitles, as it were, um, I was a kid also of the Dungeons & Dragons generation. Mm-hmm. And um, the first convention I ever went to was actually not a science fiction or an anime con. It was a D&D con. And my sister and I both went because we both we both like to play. And I was at a con in, um, I guess I was the uh, 11 years old. And this would have been uh, February 13th, 1982. You see, I remember the date. It's the day I became an otaku. And um, it was uh, DungeonCon 7 in San Mateo in California. It was kind of a held in a cheesy old hotel that looked like a, a castle. But for a kid, you know, playing D&D, it was, you know, super romantic. Right. But anyway, I was wandering around the convention. I should have been in a tournament or something. And I saw this, you know, heard these strange noises and lights coming from this room. And they were playing a episode of a series called Space Pirate Captain Harlock. Yes. Now, it was subtitled. There was no fan subtitling in 1982. What happened was that um, there was a, and there still is today, a television station in Honolulu, Hawaii called KIKU TV. And there are, of course, many uh, Japanese Americans and people who use Japanese as a language at home in Hawaii. So there was always a market there for Japanese programs, whether live-action series like Kikaider, the great you know, Sentai series, or anime. So if you were lucky in those days, you had a pen pal in Honolulu who could send you videotapes, probably on beta in those days. You guys have ever seen the Cowboy Bebop episode where they you know, yes. go down and get the wrong uh, player. But the um, anyway, and so that's how we got the only bits of English translated stuff. Um, so most anime back then was in Japanese, but it was so um, exciting that like um, you'd want to see it anyway. If you were lucky, there'd be some like dude up front pretending he knew the language, like explaining what's going on, <laughs> you know, and you know, just make stuff up. Um, or um, maybe someone had written some translation notes and like Xerox them and, and passed them out. But this was, the 80s was, you know, tremendously exciting, you know, era for anime. And, and that's that's how I got introduced to it. And then at one of these D&D conventions, I saw a flyer for an organization called the CFO, which stood for the Cartoon Fantasy Organization. Although that name doesn't sound very anime, it was the first national um, anime fan club. It was founded by uh, Fred Patton, among others, um, in Southern California, I believe in 1977, and had branches all around the United States. Um like a lot of clubs and fan things that eventually sort of fell victim to politics. But for about 10 years, if you go back and look at a lot of the people of my generation, they were all part of that club. And it was a great way to exchange information. 
they had an absolutely fantastic magazine that was published in Florida by uh, people named Kurt Black and Jane McGuire. And that magazine had really great info. They would translate uh, song lyrics. They would give episode synopses. They would even go to Japan and like interview people like Monkey Punch. Um, it's surprising how many figures in the anime and manga industry are friendly to foreigners. I mean, I don't know why it should be surprising. I only say that because these are famous and often you know successful people, but they don't um, so they don't even mind in some cases putting up some strange foreigner who's like a, who's coming over. So CFO, and then now we're in the middle eighties when I was in high school, and Robotech was on the air. Yes, and a lot of people were watching it at my high school. We were very lucky. This is the San Francisco Bay Area. And we were lucky because I understand that in a lot of parts of the country, Robotech showed early in the morning or before school or basically in a bad time slot. But in the Bay Area, Robotech showed after school. This means a lot more people could show it, could see it. And um, I also had tapes of other anime I was getting. So if people were seeing Robotech, they'd just tune on their TV and then I could say to them, hey, you, you like that? Check this out. And, you know. That showed, you know, very early on the tremendous importance of having things on television, even to this day. You know, if I hear something on, is on Toonami, I think that's great news. Because, you know, we got to remember almost all this stuff was originally on TV in Japan. You know, it's, it's meant to be for a mass audience. It doesn't always reach it. But um, Evangelion, its final episode, was seen by 10 million people. You know, that's pretty cool. And that was on broadcast television. It wasn't on cable or anything. Right. Nor was it a late-night show. Um, but... Um, so I began uh, in Berkeley. There was a, uh, a fanzine starting up called Animag, except this fanzine wanted to have professional values. They were looking at uh, magazines like New Type in Japan and saying, maybe we can do something like that. And the reason they thought they could do something was because of, uh, of Apple Computer. And Apple, long before they became a big company, was known mainly for desktop publishing. You could actually... Um, produce something that looked pretty slick and sophisticated just on your computer. If you had a laser printer, also laser printers were, were very expensive then. They cost about $2,000. But, you know, if you knew somebody who had one. So Animag was put together in Berkeley in an apartment. It had uh, full-color covers. They were very nicely painted um, and was basically trying to say, we, we, the American fans, are serious. So I was 16 when I graduated high school, a little bit early, and I took my money I'd saved up from working at Jack in the Box, and I went to Japan. And um, I had a few letters of introduction. Um, I went to um, Animage Magazine, which is from Tokumo Shoten, the people who started Studio Ghibli. And there was a wonderful, um, wonderful man there. He's passed away now, but he was the editor-in-chief, um, Hideo Ogata. And he was nice enough to receive me and uh, talk with me. And, and again, I'm a 16-year-old kid, right? Right. And I, I brought a copy of Animag sort of to show, hey, hey, this is what we're trying to do. And obviously it wasn't much compared to his magazine. Right. But I just wanted him to know that, you know, we wanted to sort of, you know, step up our game. And then he introduced me to um, Yasuo Otsuka of Tokyo Movie Shinsha. He's the great anime director, um, the animation director of Cas the Castle Cagliostro. Mm -hmm. Hayao Miyazaki was the um, uh, uh, director of it, but he, he was in charge of the actual uh, animation work. And uh, Mr. Otsuka was very nice to receive me. He speaks English. He's actually a big Jeep otaku. The, I mean, the U.S. Army Jeep. He um, he grew up in the occupation of Japan, and he you know hung around the soldiers in their jeeps, and he managed to get one. And um, so he uh, he's actually done fanzines on the Jeep. He he knows it inside and out <laughs> mechanically. Um, 
And, you know, Lupin Third, you know, by then had become my favorite anime. So I was so excited. Um, and then, of course, uh, Royal Space Force came out from Gainax. They just started in 1987. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's my favorite uh, anime film to this day. So those are the kind of things that got me into anime back then. That's, that is an excellent uh, story there because it seems, it seems almost impossible to my mind of, of being 16 going to Japan having this layer of introduction having people being willing to to talk to you with with what you with what you're trying to do at the time so I think that's incredible mm-hmm. well uh, it was a, um, it was a different time yes. <laughs> yeah uh, like they say in the old documentaries it was a different time you see um, <laughs> but the um, one of the interesting things differences about it, this is the 1980s and in the 80s Japan was viewed kind of the same way China is viewed today as kind of a rival to America a bit of a threat so there were, um, like, I couldn't necessarily speak openly to my grandparents of this because they'd fought in the war. Mm-hmm. And there's still a lot of people who said, you know, remember Pearl Harbor? And occasionally there were people who'd be like, you know, bash Japanese cars and all that. I had seen, there was one other anime I really loved, and that was called Megazone 2-3. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this uh, science fiction anime that is ostensibly takes place in modern-day Tokyo. Um but it made Tokyo look like the most exciting place in the world to be a teenager. And when I went to Tokyo, and this is not, remember, this is before otaku culture. It was, it was not about being, going to Tokyo and cosplaying or like being a fan or going to a maid cafe. It was just about being there and being alive and like hanging out and going out on dates and all that. And Japan was seen kind of as the rising power in the world. So there was a, that extra thing to the anime. It wasn't just anime it happened to be coming from this country which everyone was saying was the future and was going to own us and all you right. know because like china is like imagine if, chi- if it was china that made all the anime imagine if china was had all this clout but they also made all this cool stuff because mm-hmm. china doesn't you know we're not all watching chinese animation or tv shows but what if we did so it was kind of a combo of that so it kind of gave it that kind of dangerous edge and excitement so when i went to tokyo for the first time I actually went to all the places I'd seen in Megazone 2-3 because it was all based on real locations in Shinjuku and Roppongi and other places. And it was really exciting. And it was just, you know, a city. Right. But, you know, um, but yeah, it was very, uh, I'm, I feel very lucky to have had that. Now, I, I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody listening, uh, you knew what was coming. You knew it was going to happen as soon as I got down in the room with Carl Horn. But, if you have not seen Ava 3.33, I'm going to attempt to talk about it now. And there is literally no way of discussing this movie without spoiling it. Because five minutes in, there's huge spoilers. So, uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, go ahead and skip ahead. Um, but, I, I assume you've seen it? Well, uh, yes, but I don't really want to spoil it for people. So. Well, you know, they, they, have been, they have been warned, so... The best description I've heard of uh, Evangelion 3.33 is that uh, it's kind of the Spock's beard version of Evangelion. If you remember the Mirror Universe kind of sort of thing. <laughs> yes. The, um, uh, you know, I think the Evangelion that has been made, the rebuild of Evangelion over the last few years, um, is a different Evangelion from... And I'm not just saying that like in a technical sense, like looking at the clues, is this really, you know that Evangelion. Right. It's different in a creative sense because Gainax are, and of course now it's it's not Gainax, it's Studio Kara. There are different people and they're in a different place than they were back then. 
So I see it as basically a, a, a remake or a reinterpretation of the series. So, and one of the things that fascinates me about the difference in reaction between um, the American reaction to 3.33 and the Japanese reaction is, although, you know, Japanese people said they were somewhat, you know, confused by the film, it was also was, was pretty popular. The movie, I understand, made over um, 50 million at the box office, which would not be big in Hollywood, but is, is big for an animated movie in yes. Japan. And thus far, I believe it's made at least 25 million on home video. And this doesn't begin to count the money it's made in merchandising and promotions and all that, which again is where the real money from the from the anime gets made. So the disconnect between that success in Japan and Americans like scratching their heads, it sort of makes me wonder, maybe, maybe anime is made for Japanese people and not for other people. It's almost like every once in a while we get reminded of that, like, you know, I don't get it, like, it doesn't make any sense, you know. Well, you know, every once in a while we get pushed up against that reality, like, maybe it actually was made for the Japanese audience? <laughs> like, and, and I know that's not an all-purpose excuse. You just can't say, well, okay, don't understand it because we're not Japanese and we don't have their mystic spiritual. No, but, but you know. I, I don't I don't know that, you know, you necessarily have to be a, a cultural expert on Japan look, for, I, I for didn't, that film. Look, I didn't understand but, the second movie. Right. So it's like, and I'm very well informed by about Evangelion. Um, maybe I shouldn't have sat, like, literally three feet from the screen. But, like, um, you know. I thought the second movie was kind of uh, incoherent, so I don't. Um, it doesn't bother me because I'm um, I'm I'm very open to what Kara wants to do with Evangelion. I'm sort of viewing it as kind of this experience, like, okay, what what are you going to do? It's like I don't have preconceptions and I don't have prejudgments about it. Whatever he wants to do with it is fine. Evangelion is a kind of multi, you know, dimensional phenomenon. One of the things I talked about in my panel is the fact that we at Dark Horse publish what has been the most successful of all the Evangelion spin-off manga, the Shinji Akari Racing Project. And the Shinji Akari Racing Project takes inspiration from episode 26 of the original television series, which briefly imagined what would their life be like if it was like a, a school anime comedy, and like Misato is their teacher, and like, you know, they were all in romantic rivalries together, and was, you know, they weren't, you know, leading these horrible, awful, terrible fates. Um, and that, and some people might say, oh my God, that, that's totally betraying everything Evangelion is about. You know, it's like a totally sappy and like cliched. And yet in Japan, it's proven to be a very popular series and it's been proven to be popular in America too. I think Evangelion fans, of which of course I'm one, had the capability to kind of switch modes. Like, you know, yeah, we, we kind of like the very dark, intense side of Evangelion, but we can switch and say, you know, we also like these characters. And, you know, we can deal with Gendo being this crazy dad who actually loves Shinji. Right. You know, just embarrassing him in class all the time. So I don't, um, I, I think um, with the new Evangelion movie, I, I'm not, how should I put it? Um, I remember the controversy over the end of Evangelion yes. in 97. And there, people were saying a lot of the things then, then, they're saying now about 3.33. Like saying, dude, Anno, you know, what's going on? You're crazy. You lost your mind. <laughs> You're totally ruining Evangelion. You're, this is miserable. Like, how can you do that to the characters? I don't get it. It's like all those same things they were saying back then. Uh, so I think maybe people have forgotten that maybe they're supposed to be outraged and shocked and by Evangelion. You know? That, that was when, when I first... Because I saw the movie... I, I very much love Evangelion. So 
Not not too necessarily a slavish devotion to it, but well, I do it for a living, so right. Uh, but but I I thoroughly enjoy the show and and the series and the manga and all that. Um, so when I saw the movie, I did so sort of in a vacuum. I I made sure to avoid the internet of anything three point three uh, until I saw it, and then when I saw it, you know that's when you know it's it's okay to to go and delve into whatever's out there. And sort of seeing the the negative reaction, the first thing that popped into my mind was, what show did they think they were watching? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it, because um, I was watching it with Dylan and another one of our friend and another one of our friends uh, at the time, and my my initial reaction to it was, I don't know what's going on. And then as I started to think about it, uh, I, I was like, I started to appreciate the fact that for once and in, in the first time. Uh, since the rebuild movies came out, I didn't know what was happening um, because the first two, uh, I felt like I had a very clear sense because there are all these little clues that made you think, "Oh, this is post end of Evangelion. It's sort of a pseudo sequel, and maybe they're going to go in a different direction and explain some things." And then they did this. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening anymore, and in a way, it feels great. It feels <laughs> like I'm back home. It's like when Shinji's. Super DAT player, and it switches from track 26 to track 27. Like, yes. from now on, we are in new territory. Yes. Um, I like how they didn't update that for the film. Like, they didn't make it an MP3 flare. <laughs> no, so, why, why, why would you? And here's the thing that gets me, you know, this is 2013. We're two years from 2015. Yes. So, they say that Rebuild is, you know, that the fourth movie is going to come out. But you know there's going to be a huge revival of Evangelion in 2015. You know, for the anniversary year, they can't they can't miss that. Yeah. So you know, who knows what's going to go on? What I you know, just speaking purely as an anime fan, what I would hope for most is I really want to see something new from Hideaki Anno. Like, you know, Evangelion. When people forget about it, back in 1995, it was new. It's like, um, you know, no one in '95 nobody knew it was going to be a big phenomenon. It was on the smallest of Japan's you know four networks, and uh, Gainax didn't have a very good reputation at that time. They hadn't made anything for four years. And um, Sadamoto was even told that his character designs were cliched and nobody wanted to see, you know, you know, characters like that anymore. Everything turned out to be wrong and it blew up into a huge phenomenon. The translator of um, the new Rebuild films, Dan Kanemitsu, uh, made the observation at SakuraCon in Seattle that the main difference between the original 90s Evangelion and the new films is that the original ones were kind of indie production that sort of became mainstream by surprise. The new ones are designed to be mainstream from the beginning. Like, now they know that Evangelion was a famous name, you know. Um, and now they're, they're rolled out with all of these massive, you know, um, you know commercials and cross appeals, you know, ship razors, you know, getting those shipping yes. <laughs> and all that. You know, that didn't, that didn't happen uh, right away in the original. So I can't, I can't really knock... Ano for doing that because most people will never create one Evangelion. Just like most people will never create one Gundam or one Akira. You know, most people will never create that big hit. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of understand wanting to go back to it. Um, I'm somewhat more skeptical about whether Evangelion has the power to revitalize the anime industry um, because I think if you bring back Evangelion, well, it's already famous, right? Right. You know, what you need to do is to create something new uh, out of it. And also, I mean, on the original Evangelion, Anno tried really hard to put his entire heart and spirit into it. You know, 
he wasn't afraid to let people know that he was, you know, he was, you know, he was having troubles. Like I, I've always said about Evangelion that um, most anime are a mask. Um, it's okay. It's that character. It's this character. You've seen that character a million times. You've seen this plot a million times. But Evangelion wasn't a mask. It was a face. There was a human being, you know, behind it. And you felt it. And that was controversial. Some people said, you're being very unprofessional about this. Like, you need to finish these episodes properly. And like, um, you know, don't put so much of your, your problems into it. But people could sense the authenticness of it, that there was actually something, this, oh my God, this guy really means it. And it was something you didn't usually get out of anime. To me, that was the true essence of Evangelion. And that was the real lesson that people should have taken from it, you know. Be authentic, be authentic, you know, be human. Let people really feel it. Because, you know, Evangelion broke out of the otaku audience. Uh, there were 10 million people who watched the final episode. People who had never watched an anime before um, were watching it. And people who would not admit they were otaku could now admit it. Why? Because an otaku had made Evangelion. And he had the ability to speak. You know, there was a lot of things going on in Japan in 95. That was the year of the Kobe earthquake. It was the year of the Om Shinrikyo terrorist attack. And um, the anime was sort of capturing the spirit of the times. So he tried really hard, and yet for a while you could have thought that maybe there was a renaissance of anime that was happening in the late 90s if you put together shows like Lane and Utena and Cowboy Bebop, which I think in all, in all different ways were trying to be authentic and fresh. But it was kind of an illusion. Uh, the Renaissance didn't really happen. And if Anno could not change anime all by himself with the original Evangelion, he can't do it with the new one either. Right. But it's not his fault. He doesn't, he's tried his best. It, it's not up to any one studio and any one creator to change things. Other people have to pick up from there. Like, unfortunately, most people looked at Evangelion and said, oh, I get it. Uh, robots and, like, gloomy kids, right? That's it. You know, Anime is a niche within the Japanese entertainment industry, and it has to play by the rules often of much bigger players. The distributors, you know, the uh, the people, the film distributors, the people who handle home video, and the advertising people, the marketing people, they're the people with the big money. And many of them are not actually interested in anime per se as a medium. They're interested in it as an investment, you know, as a business thing. It's the same thing in Hollywood or the music industry or anyone else. Only some people are actually interested in it for artistic reasons. Having said that, there are some people, there are some money guys who actually do care about anime, but it's tough. And um, one of the things I was saying about the difference between anime and manga is that long ago, um, manga sort of achieved this kind of adult tier. I talked about the salaryman manga. There are many other types of manga for adults, but the fact is, if you're a Japanese person, you can every single week find on the stand several magazines with manga that are clearly for adults. And by adults, I mean people like in their 30s and 40s or older. Um, stuff that speak to you and deal with your kind of concerns, you know, at that era of life. But if you're in your 30s or 40s in Japan and you're not an otaku, it's very hard to find anime that will appeal to you. That's kind of weird because, you know, you look at Hollywood, we've got guys like you know, Tom Cruise and, and George Clooney, you know, and uh, Daniel Craig. These guys are not young guys. They're not kids. And yet they can be big action heroes. So why is it that all the heroes in anime still have to be teenagers, for the most part? And I want to emphasize that I got into anime when I was 11, and I totally understand anime for teenagers, because that, that's what revitalized me. It's just that you would have thought by now that anime would have created that kind of tier, so that every 
every season you could turn on and there'd be like something like Cowboy Bebop or Standalone Complex. You know, you'd be able to get that, a few shows like that every year, not just every once in a while. Anime has never quite gotten up to that level. It kind of shoots up there and then it like falls back in and shoots up and falls down again. There never has been that kind of stable shelf of like shows for adults. You know, and, and I say that, you know, the, what, how you can always tell is what are the age of the characters? Um, you know, a lot of people were surprised at Gurren Lagann, you know, they found out that Yoko was 14. Right. It's, it's like, she doesn't, doesn't seem 14, but like, but why does she have to be that way? And in the part that's because, well, maybe people wouldn't want to watch her because they, if they thought she was older. <laughs> and that's crazy. It's like, you know, um, you know, she's a really, you know, cool character. Um, you know, a medium that is truly, um, well-developed and truly successful should be able to offer things for people of like every age. And that is what anime has not really done, except, you know, on occasion. That's kind of the leap that manga made, but anime has never quite made. So, Evangelion, it kind of gives you a mix of characters. You know, you have the main characters who are 14, well, at least uh, originally. and right. uh, But you also have the sort of older tier of characters. And my favorite characters in Evangelion are actually uh, Kaji and Misato, mm-hmm. who, are, um, who are 29. And when Evangelion first came out, they were older than me. Now they're now they're younger. Um, and then, of course, you have Gendo and Yui and all that. But the reason Kaji and Misato are my favorite characters is they're kind of like what you call in a scientific experiment. They're, they're the control. They're the normal human beings. And Evangelion is so apocalyptic and deals so much with the idea of how people's emotional pain and frailties lead them to try to sort of destroy the world and make a new one in which they won't suffer anymore. Which, you know, anyone who's really been in pain, who has lost a loved one, they can understand those feelings, but doesn't give you the right. You know, you go back to Evangelion, I'm sorry that Gendo lost Yui, but it doesn't give him the right to, like, change the whole world. Right. If you take a bone on it. You know, Misato and Kaji are normal human beings. They're trying to be decent people in the midst of a really terrible situation. And frankly, you know, they, they're better parents, you know, to the kids than their actual parents are. Um... And Misato and Kaji are messed up people, but it's okay to be messed up. It's like Shinji and Asuka might grow up to be like them, but they'd be alive, you know, and they'd be fairly, you know, decent people. So to me, Misato and Kaji kind of symbolize it's okay to grow up. It's okay to live with your pain. You can still be a good person. You can still do the right thing. And, you know, and they act, you know, rather heroically, too. So to me, they're kind of the characters you should look at. I don't judge the children very harshly. You know, people say, oh, Shinji, you're whining so much. You know, you know what in the real world they call people who send 14-year-olds into combat? They call them war criminals. They put them on trial, <laughs> you know, in the Hague. It's like Kony and all that, you know. People forget that. Like, anime is full of these, like, uh, child soldiers. And I, I re- and I realize I'm looking at it, I'm saying it in an uncool way. Because, again, like, I was 14 and 15 watching anime. And, of course, I'd love to pilot, you know, robot and all that. And right. have, have a lot of fun. So, you know, but, you know, when you stop to think about it, that's actually considered, like, uncivilized, you know, behavior for, uh, you know, a nation. You know, I know nerve isn't very accountable. <laughs> but um, but also, like, I don't, you know, how hard can you really judge people like um, Shinji or Oscar or even especially Ray? These people haven't had a normal kind of upbringing. You know, they're forced into terrible situations. And, you know, it's one thing if he's if he's whining about having to study for a test. You know, he's whining about, you know, having to, you know, 
slaughter, you know, these giant, you know, creatures and all that, you know, with his bare hands, you know, and sort of become this, you know, bestial combat guy. That's not fair for a kid, you know, to, you know, and, and Ray, I mean, oh, Ray is, Ray is sullen, Ray is silent. Ray has been raised as a lab animal. It's like, you know, the fact she has any human emotions at all is just amazing. And I guess we sort of put this aside, you know, for a moment, you know, for the sake of enjoying the flow of the story. Mm-hmm. We stop to think about it, though. Um, and I think also that's one of the reasons why the Shinji Akari Racing Project is such a popular manga, because people say, hey, can't they be happy? You know, wouldn't that be nice? So Right. Um, I, I really wish we had several days to go on about this, but we don't. Uh, you've got other obligations, other places that you need to be. But before we let you go, um, I know that uh, there is a organization that um, Dark Horse works with. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, we've been uh, doing work for years with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And um, those of you who read Otaku USA magazine, you might have read that we're doing a new book with them. Um, it's a book, which a guidebook to manga. It's called uh, CBLDF Presents Manga. And there are a lot of books on manga in the market. What makes this one different is it's written by real experts. First of all, it includes people like Ed Chavez, who was guest of honor here last year. He's at Vertical. Uh, Erica Friedman, longtime published comic publisher and heading up Yurikon and ALC. Um, Robin Brenner, uh, Shane and Garrity. We're talking about people associated with the American Library Association. And um, the book is designed to be an introduction, you know, your one-stop shop to really give you a brief history of manga, really explain the genres, you know, I mean, shoujo and shonen, you know, and yuri and yaoi, and explain it in a concise way that makes sense, that is accessible to librarians, to booksellers, and just people who want a compact information. And um, the reason why the CBLDS work is so important is, as some of your listeners may know, in recent years, there have been Americans and Canadians who have been prosecuted uh, for manga, and in some cases uh, threatened with lengthy uh, prison sentences. Now, some people, of course, you know, there's a lot of you know dubious manga out there, and a lot of people might say, well, I don't like that stuff anyway, and it's kind of, you know, we need to get rid of it, it's bringing down, you know, the industry. That's not really the question you need to ask yourself here. The question is not whether you, how you personally feel about this manga, the question is, do you think that people's lives should be destroyed because they have these manga for no other reason than like, you know, possessing it because that's what's been happening it. You know, I say if you don't like this manga, if you don't want to host it, if you don't want to carry it, if you don't want to sell it, that's perfectly fine. But this is a free speech issue. And um because you're depicting in some of these manga things that in real life, you know, might be a crime. Well, but isn't that true of like, you know, so much for our violent entertainment as well? Right. Um I'm a strong supporter of constitutional liberties, and uh, Clarence Darrow, the great um, constitutional lawyer, you know, famous for the uh, Scopes trial, later made into the play Inherit the Wind, he once said that the only way to make sure you have all the freedom you need is to have too much of it. So you can't um, say, well, I'll compromise with you. Organizations like the NRA don't compromise. A lot of people look at the NRA and say, oh, those guys are crazy. How can you, how can you defend that? Well, regardless of how you feel about gun rights, they have the right idea in terms of civil liberties. You have to stand up very strongly, you know, for it. And I would like to see the First Amendment protected just as strongly as the Second. And um, if we look at it from the perspective of gun rights, if you believe that people should have the right to have a gun, you know, a lethal weapon, and they can be trusted with that, 
then you certainly should think they can be trusted to have a comic book and not, you know, do any harm with it in the real world. So I sort of look at it, you know, in that fashion. So the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, their site is cbldf.org, and I really would urge everyone to go there and get educated. Um, they talk about some of these issues that are going on and what you should be doing. And we really need to get more um, manga and anime fans uh, supporting this. Because as the title of the organization suggests, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, they originated as defenders of comic books, which are facing similar issues. But in recent years, most of the prosecutions have actually been manga. And yet, um, in my experience, most of the uh, support that's coming for the organization has still been from the comic book sector. And um, I would like to see more fans, more manga fans, and more anime fans step up and uh, support their work. And because some people are wondering, oh, well, what is safe and what is not safe? And just tell me what's okay and what's not okay. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Those things, you know, there's no, like, bright line, and some, some official can decide that what you think is perfectly innocuous, now you're in big trouble. And I honestly believe it is wrong to ruin people's lives over comics or drawings, no matter what they portray. And that's a completely different issue from how you personally feel about that material. I think people can be free to really dislike it and really hate it. But that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for this to be a speech issue, an opinion issue, um, and not to be something which people will be put in jail or prison for. So I totally accept people's feelings about it. But the relevant question is, do you think a person should be put in prison over it? Do you think their life should be ruined? And that kind of thing is happening. And if you don't think so, then support the CBLDF because they are the legal experts who are trying to fight against these cases, and they know how to do it. So, you know, there are times when you really need, you know, a lawyer on your side, and these are people who care about these issues. They care about comics. They care about manga. And that's why they're in this particular field. Well, Carl, uh, got to let you go with that. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, and uh, I hope you all enjoyed the podcast. Oh.